0: We're going to be looking at the third comforter this morning, Zophar. Most of you know the name Elizabeth Elliot. She's the author of many books, especially uh, her seminal book, Through Gates of Splendor. She was married to the missionary, of course, Jim Elliott, who was one of the five missionaries that were killed in 1956 by the Aka Indians as they were attempting to bring the gospel to that tribe. Uh, Jim's death left Elizabeth a widow with a one-year-old baby. Thirteen years after, words, thirteen years of being a widow, she met and married Addison Leck a professor of uh, philosophy and religion. They had a wonderful life together for six years until he contracted cancer and the Lord took him to be with him. Speaking a few years after her second husband's death, she said this, I've spent six-sevenths of my life single, though I have been married twice. I did not choose the gift of widowhood But I accept it as the sphere in which I am to live for the glory of God. Elizabeth Elliot was learning a lesson that we all need to learn. A lesson that is embedded here in Job. And that is that this world is broken. Thus suffering is a normal part of the experience of a believer. And what we've been seeing over the last several weeks is, as we've looked at Job's comforters is that we can cause great harm to those that are suffering among us if we rush to judgment, if we, if we think we have the answer to their, to their suffering. Because so far the comforters have done great harm to Job. Last week we saw through Bildad the brutal That we can cause great harm if we approach suffering in a cerebral, strictly intellectual, and logical manner. Before that, we met Eliphaz, the prosperous, who offered Job the earliest version we know of, of the health-wealth gospel. If you repent, God is on the hook to restore you. In other words, you can have heaven on earth now. A train wreck waiting to happen, if any of you have ever been, been captured by that type of, of gospel preaching. This morning we come to the third comforter, who we will call Zophar the Zealous. Zophar the Zealous. We meet the friend who counsels him in the other direction. This is the friend that counsels him in the other direction. Telling Job, if you don't repent it'll be hell on earth. If you don't repent, it'll be hell on earth. Because God judges sin now. So look with me at chapter 11 as we look at this third comforter, and I say that with quotations. God's word says, starting in verse 1, Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered? And a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men? And when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is he higher than heaven? What can you do? Deeper than Sheol? What can you know? His measure His measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons to court... Who can call him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, he will not consider it. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is when a wild donkey's colt is, is born a man. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then will you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many... Will court your favor, but the wicked, the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them, and their hope is to breathe their last. Father God, we. Again, implore you, as we do every Sunday, to send your spirit of understanding, your Holy Spirit, to help us understand this text for us today, not only help us understand it for our minds, but help us understand it for our hearts, so that we can be changed by it. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. There's a Chinese proverb that states this, though conversing face to face, their hearts have a thousand miles between them. I think that describes so far. In fact, it can be said of all three of the comforters. They have not really been real counsel to Job at all. And it brings Job to a point in a few chapters, in chapter 16, where he actually points to them and says, Miserable comforters are you all. He realizes it. They are bad comforters for many reasons. First, because they have this bad theology. This theology of, of retributive justice. An oversimplified kind of reaping what you sow. Then they, we see them as supremely impatient. I mean, you can just see that by all their first words. They display hardly any empathy to Job at all. Probably the best thing that the Comforters did is in the end of chapter 2 and beginning of chapter 3 when they come and just sit with him in silence. Then also they think the simple answer to Job is just repentance. That's the, that's the answer. Because they believe Job has done some heinous sin. Some sin that he is continuing not to tell them. And they're angry at him for not claiming it. And, and as you read through Job, you see their ire beginning to build and their words become sharper towards Job. And here, Zophar is no different. Look at his opening words in verses two and three. I'm going to read them to you in the New Living Translation. I told the Discovery Group a couple weeks ago or last week that, that it's very helpful to read Job. In a paraphrase version, read the version you normally do, but have a paraphrase next. It's very helpful. And the New Living Translation is a good paraphrase. Listen to his words that he says in two and three. Shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Do you hear his condescension? Is a person proved innocent by a lot of talking? Should I remain silent when you babble? When you mock God, shouldn't, some, shouldn't someone make you ashamed? Not words of comfort. Not words that, that hopefully you would say to a dear friend who is, who is at the bottom of a miry pit of suffering. But Zophar has no empathy, and he goes on to insist, as the, as the others do in verses 4, 5, and 6, that Job has to be guilty of something. You can't suffer like this without being guilty of something, of equal heinousness. You read there, he says, For you say, this is Zophar saying, For you say, Job, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in my eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. Hear what he's saying there? And that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. For he is manifold in understanding. You see, Eliphaz came and he told Job that he was a slight sinner. Then we had Bildad who came and said, No, Job, you're not a slight sinner. You're a serious sinner. But what Zophar comes and says is, You're not a slight sinner. You're not a a serious sinner. You're a secret sinner. You're not telling us. And that comes with good and bad, What he is saying comes with good and bad. Here again, there's good mixed together with bad. There's, there's a kernel of truth in, in, in what Zophar is saying here. Zophar is saying in, in chapter 11, Hey listen Job, you might be able to hide your sin from me. But you can't from an omnipotent God. You can't hide from him. He knows everything. He sees everything. So he's trying to draw this secret sin that he thinks Job has, that we know he, he doesn't have. That doesn't mean he's perfect, but he's not suffering because of some great sin. But Zophar is trying to draw this out. You might be able to hide your sin from me, but not God, Job. God knows everything. You can't hide from him. And in verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, he goes on this rhetorical diatribe. Proving to him that you can't hide. Can you solve the mysteries of God? I'm reading from the NIV here. Can you discover everything about the Almighty? Such knowledge is higher than the heavens. Who are you? It is deeper than the underworld. What do you know, Job? It is broader than the earth and wider than the sea. If God comes and puts a person in prison or calls him to the court, who can stop him? For he knows those who are false. And he takes note of all their sins, so far as saying you can 't hide from God, job, but like picking through you know when you go to the grocery store and you go to the to the apple place and, and, and you 're kind of taking the good apples and putting the bad ones, they, they don 't you find that they try and put the bad ones up front so you take them. Nah, you're not going to get that past me. You pick through them and you get to the back where they have their new fresh apples without the deep bruises. You have to pick through what Job's comforters are saying. You have to be discerning to separate out the good from the bad. And we know from chapters 1 and 2 that, that Job is, is innocent of anything heinous. He's not perfect, but God... Job says, and then God repeats two times that he is blameless and upright, that he fears God. What has happened is that Job's life, as we have seen, has become a spiritual battlefield. He has suffered that meteor strike of suffering that we talked about in the first sermon. Secondly, we know that Zophar what Zophar says about God is true. What Zophar says about God is true. He is omnipotent. He does know all. Nothing can be hidden from him. No one but God has this incommunicable attribute of of omniscience. God knows and sees everything. How many people here have have read Ezekiel lately. It's actually one of the least read books in the entire Bible. And it's because it's so confusing. Even from the first chapter, you open up and and Ezekiel has this vision of God. He sees this, this storm cloud coming down. And in that storm cloud are even more confusing things. You have... Uh, an intensely bright man sitting on a throne. You have four living creatures around him with four faces. And they're standing above the earth. And on their feet are, are these wheels that, that take up several verses to describe what these wheels are. They're like, the, you know, some verses say they're wheels within wheels. Some of them describe them as perpendicular to each other. What, what? And, and, and on these wheels are, it's covered on the outside with eyes. You can kind of think of them as a gyroscope with eyes all around. And in that image, Ezekiel is trying to describe the best way he can. Trying to describe the best way he can the omniscience of God. The all-seeingness of God. You have these creatures that are on the earth and they see all. And then they're raised above and they see all. The omniscience of God. There's no place that you can go where those eyes don't see you. And on the one hand, that is super comforting. Do you feel that comfort? It is super comforting to know that we serve a God who is all-knowing, all-seeing, all everything all the time. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee free from your presence? And then later on he goes, how precious to me are those thoughts, oh God. It's precious to know that he sees you all the time. It's comforting to know that there's someone who knows all and sees all. Just like medical residents when they go into their residency. It's comforting for them to know that they are being uh, watched and overseen by a surgeon who's, who's seen and done it all for years. So that when they're diagnosing and dissecting, they can turn to this person and go, is this, is this right? Am I, or am I going to kill this person? That's comforting to the resident. And just like it's comforting to the resident, it's comforting for the Christian to be able to know that God, Yahweh, the Almighty, the all-seeing God, He's the person we can turn to. Because He knows all. He's seen it all. He sees, as my mother used to say, around corners. And we can't. Amy Carmichael. The wonderful early twentieth century missionary to India, a single woman, had a plaque above her, her by her bedside that said, I know, fear not. And she had that there because in her fifty years there in India as a single woman, there were many times when she was discouraged, many times when she was fearful. And she, at one of these times, she called a dear friend of hers. And and her dear friend said, read over Revelation 2 and 3, and you will see this pattern. I know, fear not. Over and over to the churches, I know, fear not. And so she wrote that on a plaque to remind her at her times when she was tempted to fear that God knows all. And that is help when she is terrified. As a matter of fact, she wrote a poem about it. And it goes like this. I know the words contain unfathomable comfort for our pain. I know how, how can they hold such depths I know not? I only know it is so. Fear not, the words have power to give the thing they name for an hour of utter weariness the soul aware of one beside her bed is comforted. O Lord most dear, I thank thee and I worship thou art here. So on the one hand, brothers and sisters, his all-seeingness, his all-knowingness, his omniscience is a wonderful comfort. But on the other hand, it can be quite terrifying too. He knows everything. He knows everything. That's where we go. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes of him. And here are the words to whom we must give an account. He knows everything. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from God. That is something that we just have to know. It's comforting, but it also brings us up short sometimes. He knows every ill thought, ill plan, ill intention every foul word said or even thought, every slander, every slight, every sight visited. He knows every covetous urge and callous intention, every lie, every lust, every loose moment, every loose lips of gossip. And so Zophar is right. Oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. And so his conclusion in verse 6, Know that God exacts of you, Job, less than your guilt deserves. Now, Zophar is saying there that in a very, very convicting, condescending way. He's basically telling Job, You are a greater sinner than you realize, Job, so your suffering, though great, should be even greater. That's what he's saying to Job. Harsh, for sure. But there again, there again is that kernel of truth, isn't there? It's that kernel of truth for us. We are blind to so much of our sin. Mark told us earlier. And it's true. We think we're this sinful. And we're blind to so much of our sin. The rabbit hole, as we say around here, goes much deeper than we're even willing to go many times. And here's what's so counterintuitive. And here's what is so glorious about being a believer. Gospel growth actually happens when you lean into what Zophar is saying. We want to go like this. But... But... Understanding the depth of our sin is actually like pouring miracle grow on the gospel. Amen. And it's so counterintuitive. When you lean, lean in to understanding that you're a greater sinner than you think. When you lean in and begin to shake your head to say, yeah, I'm blind. I have a big blind spot. When you lean in to actually start saying, yeah, I I should be suffering more. And when you reach that point, when you start owning that, when you start shaking your head a little in agreement with that, that is when the gospel takes hold in your life. That is really when it does. And the more you lean into that, the more the gospel will take control of your life. R.C. Sproul wrote in The Truth of the Cross, Sin is cosmic treason. I think he might have been the first one to coin that phrase. He goes on and says, The slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against a sovereign God who reigns and rules over us, and as such, is an act of treason against the cosmic king. He concludes by saying this, not until we take God seriously, will we ever take sin seriously. I'm going to piggyback on that. And I'm going to say, not until we take sin seriously... Will we ever really take the gospel seriously? See, Je- Jesus had to suffer to the depth of Job because our sin is so much greater than we think. You know that Mel Gibson movie, The, um, the Passion of the Christ? You know, a lot of people say, oh, I, I just can't watch that, it's too gory. I think it might be healthy if you can endure it. To watch that because that shows the depth of suffering that he had to go through. Because our sin is so heinous. I mean, one of the easiest ways into the gospel in the book of Job is Job himself. And just look at where he is and his condition. And that should take our minds right to Christ. Christ. Because that's what he went through. Because our sin deserved such punishment. Jesus became like Job for us so that we don't have to suffer like Job. What is so sweet is that Zophar's words come true in the gospel. God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. That's the freedom of the cross he suffers we do not he gets the cross we get the crown so brothers and sisters I'd ask you to pray that the Lord opens your eyes just to maybe a little bit more to who you really are maybe pray Psalm 139 it's a hard prayer I remember 15 or 20 years ago when I was doing my round of visitation I, I read this prayer as a closing prayer and and many people were saying why are we praying this? And this is what I read. You know it. Search me O God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You're, what you're asking the, the Lord to do is open my eyes a little more to who I really am. Take the blind spot away a little. And that's like pouring miracle Grow on your life. But there's an ugly side to what Zophar says too. And that is that it is supremely ugly to preach this retributive justice. Look at verse 20 with me. There he says it, At the end of everything, you know, God, you're hiding some sin. God knows all. You should repent. God will forgive you. But if not, the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Zophar concludes because Job refuses to repent. He is going to be judged right now. That's what's going on in your life. That's why you have boils all over your skin that are bursting. That's why you're outside the city sitting on an ash heap alone. That's why your ten children were taken away, Job. That's why you lost your house and your wealth. You're being judged and that is what all the friends believe. That's what they've been telling him. God does not wait to judge. God judges now. As a matter of fact, a little later on today, you can read the 20th chapter, which is the second speech of, and last speech of, of Zophar. And that's all he's telling Job. You are wicked. This is why this is happening to you. And wickedness will be judged right now and you will. Are the main focus of that. He's preaching a judgment now theology. Eliphaz had a blessing now prosperity perspective, and Zophar's is taking it the opposite way judgment now. And it's really, again, another oversimplification of you sow what you reap. You reap what you sow. Perhaps we can say an over realized reap what you sow. Because God did create the world that way. God created the world so that these principles would work. You reap what you sow. Yes, it's all throughout scripture. But what we have to remember is this world is broken. So, I love how Christopher Ashe, the analogy he uses to help us understand this. He says, suppose an earthquake struck Manhattan. Manhattan with its clear, ordered grid streets. If I wanted to go from point A to point B after the earthquake, it would still be advised, best advised, to go by the main roads. But whereas before the earthquake, that would always be the best route, now I might find that the main road has been blocked, and some building has collapsed, collapsed and opened an unplanned route. It's a little like this, he says, with the created order after the disruption of the fall of mankind. I find that really helpful. And I think it's really helpful to be thinking like this when we think through the principles that that are in Scripture. I think it's very helpful to think like this when we're in suffering or helping someone in suffering. See, the principles that worked in such a neat and orderly way before the fall don't work in that neat and orderly way anymore. Because this world is broken. Neither blessing nor suffering is a straight line anymore. That's what's wrong with the, the, the counselors here. They're drawing straight lines where they shouldn't be drawing straight lines anymore. That's why both Jeremiah and Job ask the same question. Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? That's why Asaph in Psalm 73 throws up his hands and says, Is living righteously worth, worth it even? And that's why we ask those same questions. Because an earthquake has occurred and there are no more straight lines. There's no more blessing now and judgment now. Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Sometimes it should be, but it doesn't. And it's confusing. It's kind of like making your way around in a city that you knew before, but has been changed by an earthquake. And that's why teachers and preachers that preach this simplistic way cause such great damage in people's lives. Because they're saying, just go straight. Don't you see it? It's easy. And it's not. You know, I really appreciated Jacob's class on, on the Proverbs. And I was sitting back there today, and we're struggling trying to see Christ in the Proverbs. It's hard. Because it's not a straight line. It's a struggle. How do we see Christ here? Because there are no more direct routes. No simplistic principles that guarantee results. Thus, we cannot say, train a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will depart from it. Our children grow up, And some of them turn away from Christ. Despite you catechizing, despite you taking them to church, despite you taking them to youth group, despite you praying for them. Lord, I've done everything right. It's a broken world. No straight lines. We cannot say, why am I suffering? I lived according to how you told me to live in in Scripture. I I sacrificed. I saved myself. I served. Why am I suffering? No straight lines. Tim Keller is suffering from stage four pancreatic cancer after giving his life to preaching and planting churches. He'll most likely die next year. Jim Boyce. Same thing, 22 years ago. Flourishing ministry. Helping the kingdom of God. Dies of cancer. And Hugh Hefner lives to 90. There's no straight lines. Not as simple as blessing now, judgment now. So what are we to do with this? How do we navigate through this rubble? In conclusion, I want to give you three words. Three ways. Trust, listen, and wait. Trust, listen, and wait. Trust in Christ. Multiple times he said, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We cannot jettison how God calls us to live because it just doesn't work. We're called to live as he did in the rubble. We're called to follow his example. To live the righteous principles out despite what they bring us. And you know what it brought Christ? The cross. Two, listen. Listen for Christ. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. He also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, brothers and sisters, pray and then listen. How often have we said our prayers and then gone on our way? Listen. Listen to as you're doing your devotions in the days and weeks and months for God to speak to you through his word. Listen for that voice of the spirit that speaks to us, that nudges us. Listen to the community of faith that God has put you in and he'll speak. Trust, listen, and wait. Wait for Christ's return. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not that way now. We're to pray for that. We're to pray, Lord, come and clean up the streets so that there are straight lines again. And he's not going to do that until he comes again. So we're to wait one day he'll come back and then and only then will there be blessing now and judgment now it'll be perfect it'll be perfectly meted out all the wrongs made right the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer the earthquake will be cleaned up and there'll be straight streets again Until then, we are waiting, we are anticipating, we are straining forward, we're saying the end of Revelation 22, come Lord Jesus, and we are celebrating the Lord's Supper that he instituted to help in our waiting. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this word you've given us in Job Thank you for the difficulty that it is that we have to struggle with it and strain and grapple with it so that it gets into the grain of our heart. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It is appropriate